Praise the Lord. Amen. Welcome everyone to Calvary Monument. Children in kindergarten to third grade, you can be dismissed now. Thanks for uh, our team this morning and, and the great job they did. The choir, wonderful. Uh, it's going to relate very well to where we're going to be in God's word today. It's hard to think about total praise in the face of adversity. Yet that is exactly where Paul will find himself as we continue in our series in Philippians. We have a new memory verse for the month of October. It is October already. I trust none of you brought canoes here to church today, but it probably would have worked if you would have jumped in and gotten your paddles out. It was raining pretty hard. We look forward to learning this new verse together. It's from the book we'll be studying for the next few months, Philippians chapter 2. Let's say it together today. Do nothing from rivalry or... Sorry, let's start over again. <laughs> Different translation. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Philippians 2, 3 to 4. So you might have caught this morning uh, as you were worshiping and, and singing and taking part in, in the music part of the ministry that we had this morning, a theme of adversity. And you know, a lot of us face adversity every single day. Many of us. Many of us have ongoing adversity in our lives, adversity, difficulty, challenging uh, struggles that have been there for a long time and have persisted through the years. Some of us have adversity that's fairly new, that we're still getting used to. There's individual adversity that each of us may face on our own each day, but there's also a, a kind of corporate or institutional adversity that we face together. Think about the churches in Ukraine today and the adversity that they're facing. Think of our brothers and our sisters in the state of Florida and what they're facing today is as one of the worst storms that has impacted our country in a long time has struck in the South. Adversity, individual, corporate. Paul found himself in a situation of intense adversity. And we might be surprised as we look at the word today to learn how Paul's imprisonment influenced those charged to watch over him. Like Jesus, Paul had become sort of this lightning rod to the Jewish religious establishment. His life and his ministry found itself consistently at odds with the comfortable and economically efficient machine that made up ancient Judaism. And for this... The Jewish leaders were quick to try to stamp out or put an end to Paul's influence in and among the people. And so in an attempt to thwart Paul's ministry, the religious leaders had him indicted on made-up charges and handed over as a prisoner to the Romans. Sound familiar? We can find more about this account in Acts chapters 24 to 28. Paul was walking in the footsteps of his Messiah. He was an innocent man, convicted, tried by his own people in conspiracy 
with Roman government leaders. And as a Roman citizen, when Paul appeals to Caesar, he's invoking his rights. If Paul wanted to go into the lion's den and face the teeth of Caesar, the religious leaders of his day were happy to let him go there. And though Paul was ultimately held as a prisoner, it was not imprisonment as we traditionally understand it. When we think of the word imprisonment today, we think of a jail cell, and we think of iron bars and all of those things. Paul is actually under house arrest from AD 60 to AD 62. And at the end of this time, most scholarship agrees that Paul would have faced his trial and his ultimate conviction before the Caesar, that time it was Nero. But while under house arrest, Paul was able to carry on and carry out his ministry. He ran it and he lived in his own quarters. However, as a part of his house arrest, he was assigned a rotation of praetorian guards to keep 24-7 watch over him. Now, the Praetorian Guards, they were a unique group of Roman soldiers. They were very wealthy, they were highly respected, and they were consequentially very influential. One scholar noted this, quote, There were originally 10,000 of these hand-picked soldiers, concentrated in Rome by Tiberius. They had double the pay and special privileges, and became so powerful that emperors had to court their favor. While on house arrest, Paul had contact with one after another of these same soldiers. End quote. As we so often see in life's narratives, what man intends for harm or evil, God can use to bring about for good and flourishing. A reminder to us that there is hope in our suffering and difficulty. God can turn even the most hostile and uncomfortable places into opportunities for the gospel to advance and for people's lives to be transformed by its power. And so today we're going to turn to our next portion of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. We're going to examine how Paul described the hope of his imprisonment. There are many ways for you to follow along today with us. You can take your devices and find the Bible app and turn there. You could click on the CNBC app or you can take your paperback Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 12 to 26. There are three questions that we want to diagnose in our time together today. The first question is this. What is the hopeful lens through which we should interpret and understand our current adversity. Second, in our current adversity, how does Paul's example inform our defense and proclamation of the gospel? Then finally, how might God turn our current adversity into an opportunity to glorify his name and bring about good and deliverance in our lives and the lives of those he places in our pathways. Before we read from the text this morning, let's bow and ask God's help for our time together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for its living, 
and its active nature. It is vibrant. It is life-changing. It is powerful. It is informative, not just for today, but for tomorrow and eternity to come. For in it, Lord, you teach us how we can walk through this world as aliens and sojourners and live in a way that's pleasing to you. Lord, there is much adversity that we face in our lives. We come together as a body of Christ and we recognize that we need your help. We need the ministry of your Holy Spirit working in our lives each and every day to guide us in walking through these difficult days that we live in. We ask that as we turn to your word that we'll take what the Holy Spirit applies to each of us today and we'll use it in a way that glorifies and honors you and is effective for the people that you place in our pathways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. This is Paul writing. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul's imprisonment was a testimony to the power of Jesus and the influence that living and speaking like him in this world can have on other people. If Jesus' words and his message were disruptive to the Jewish religious leaders, then we should not be surprised that as Jesus' apostle and an early church leader, and as Paul continued the work of Jesus, that he himself would find himself in the same uncomfortable circumstances that Jesus did. Jesus' problems began amongst his own people, 
who ultimately would turn to worldly solutions to find a way to deal with Jesus. Paul's problems began in a similar vein with his own people who once again found themselves more than happy to use worldly solutions to deal with Paul. Yet, Paul viewed his current adversity as an opportunity to advance the gospel. And what an opportunity it was! And if the church in Philippi had any doubts about the effectiveness or efficiency of Paul's gospel ministry to continue while he was imprisoned, these lines were written to set the record straight. The imperial guards, they were there. They were watching the way that Paul lived. They were hearing the words that he was speaking, seeing the words he was writing, watching the power of the gospel alive and active in Paul's life. And they themselves were being transformed by it. In verse 13, Paul says, The whole imperial guard and everyone else knows that I am in prison for who? The sake of Christ. The Jews who existed in this Roman community knew why Paul was in prison. The Romans knew why Paul was in prison. But also, Paul reveals in verse 14, the other Christian women and men in and around his community, knew why he was imprisoned as well. And in his imprisonment, the Spirit was working through Paul's boldness and his courage to grow the boldness and courage in other believers who looked at Paul. And now, more than ever, they were encouraged to proclaim the gospel fearlessly. Paul was setting the example he was doing the work he had been called to do. And church, it is important, we must be careful that we do not believe or live as if the power and effectiveness of the gospel are dependent on our circumstances. Now we find ourselves in all kinds of various difficult circumstances. And it becomes very easy for us to find ourselves in a place where, whether it's a difficult circumstance at work, in our home, at school, in our families, where we can start to believe or maybe even live like, because of this, God's work in me is going to somehow be hindered. This is not the case. God is able to work through adversity and difficult circumstances. As believers of Jesus... Followers of the way. We're bound to find ourselves in these things that are disadvantageous to us. We might even come to expect it. This was Jesus' example. It's Paul's example here. And it was the example of many of the disciples throughout history. Friends, the Bible's clear. As Christians, we live as aliens and sojourners, foreigners in this world. And you know, I had an opportunity to reflect on that in a very interesting way uh, over the course of the past few weeks as I've been wrestling. And you know, I've, I've been thinking that as Christians, there is so much that we can learn from our migrant populations and from the displaced peoples who live around us. Our lives and our circumstances 
should in so many ways mirror theirs. Their struggles should in many ways mirror our own. We should find solidarity and common ground as we learn to live together in a land that should feel very foreign and unusual to us. The hopeful lens that helps us interpret the adversity that comes in living as foreigners in this world is the power of Christ living in and working through us. This is a power that's not bound by our circumstances or adversity, but rather it's extravagantly more effective, brighter, warmer as Jesus moves with us through adversity so that we can shine light and be effective in this strange world. Whatever may come, or whatever currently is, faithful obedience and confident hope, even within our most difficult spaces, is an opportunity for the light and the power of the gospel to advance, for people's lives to be changed through our testimonies of faithfulness, and for God's name to be glorified in the transformation that he brings. We sang it this morning. He is faithful. Amen? Tomorrow could be a difficult day. You might go to work and find yourself in an extremely difficult circumstance. God is faithful. Amen? It could be difficult as a student. You might go to school tomorrow and find yourselves faced with temptations or conversations that you never imagined that you'd experience. God is faithful in helping you through that. Amen? As families, tomorrow we might wake up and find ourselves in an incredibly difficult circumstance with a loved one. Perhaps a member of our own family, maybe a difficult diagnosis, maybe some difficult behaviors that have been present or patterns of living that have been present that have just been really hard for us. God's faithful to help us navigate that as well. Amen? Man, he is faithful. Paul's in prison. And local believers are actually emboldened to preach and proclaim the gospel as they witnessed the faithfulness of Paul. Isn't that incredible? God is still able to use the testimony of our lives in that way as we are faithful. How are they able to do that? How are they able to walk through that season of grief with such hope and such composure? How are they able to handle that situation where I would have flew off the handles in anger and hostility? How are they so calm and peace-filled? Only through Jesus. Only through Jesus and his work within us. There are two groups that begin to emerge while Paul's in prison. He describes both of them in verses 15 and 17. Take a look again. He says this in verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, 
but others from goodwill. The latter do so from love because they know that I'm placed here for defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, because they think they can cause trouble for me in my imprisonment. It's important to note in these verses that Paul's not saying that both of these groups are equal in that they're doing the right thing. In fact, by the structure of the letter, Paul is giving the priority to the latter group, those who are preaching the gospel with a spirit of love and free will. The reality is that giving his current circumstances, there was not much that Paul could do regarding those who were preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. There just wasn't. He was under house arrest. And there were those, indeed, who were seizing on the opportunity while Paul was in prison to make a name for themselves, to build their own platform, their own reputation, to fill their own pockets. Paul could do very little about it. And he didn't want other believers or other churches that he had planted to get caught up or distracted by that nonsense either. Friends, this is still happening today. Today, there are still a lot of people who preach the gospel with wrong ambitions and misguided motivations. We should all be careful that we do not become or are not one of them. But what should be our posture towards those that are doing this? That's a question that Paul's addressing here. Ultimately, we know it's not about whose name is the biggest and brightest, whose ministry has the most numbers, who sells the most books or gets the most views or has the most friends on InstaTweet or FaceChat. I don't know. <laughs> Social media, whatever we call it. I really don't use it too often. It's not about those things. I mean, they're there. Don't get me wrong. Books can be used as a tool to advance the gospel, no doubt. Social media can be a tool that's used to advance the gospel and the work of the ministry. Absolutely. I'm not saying these are bad things, but they can be used wrongly. They can be used poorly. They can be used with improper motivation. Paul suggests in verse 18 that our posture should be only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, that we are rejoicing that Christ is being proclaimed. That's a hard posture for me. I don't know about you. When I see someone who's out there for their own gain, it's hard for me. To have this posture. This is a challenging one for us church. It is better for Christ to be preached. With impure motives. Than for him not to be preached at all. Wow. Wow. This is because. The power of the gospel. Is not. Dependent on circumstances. But neither is it dependent on the character of the one proclaiming it. I don't know about you, but over the last number of years, we've probably all 
witness, there have been audience to difficult things happening with faith leaders that we may have very well respected and loved. The gospel is bigger than the sin of man. Amen? Amen. This doesn't excuse bad behavior or bad character. Absolutely not. Paul's not doing that. And we know those who preach Christ with impure motives, they're going to have their reward, and their reward will look much different from them who proclaim Christ with pure motivations. But what this is, is this is a testimony that if the gospel is being proclaimed, we should be rejoicing because God's power is not held captive by sinful motivations or impure conduct. And for that church, we should be thankful because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Every person who proclaims the word of God is a sinner. If the power of the gospel was held captive by the lifestyle of a person, it would be a weak gospel. But it's greater. It's bigger. It's more powerful. Along with the centrality of Jesus in his letter to the Philippians, there's a concept that emerges even as Paul is in prison. The concept of joy. Joy. Now, it's one thing to just overlook and say, okay, Paul did write those words, so this guy over here, he's preaching the gospel with impure motives. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. I'm just going to kind of overlook it. I'm still not happy. It's another thing to have joy. That the gospel's being preached. Challenging text today. Not only can Paul be joyful in his imprisonment, knowing that it can be used of Jesus for the advancement of the gospel, but he can also be joyful when the gospel is proclaimed, whether it's proclaimed in pretense or in truth, as he says. He's helping the church understand or get a right understanding on the power of God and the power of the gospel. And how that power can cause us to live with unusual joy. Joy that the not yet believing world could hardly understand or comprehend. In the ministry and advancement of the gospel, we have no need to identify competitors. I've been so thankful that over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, this emerged as a theme in churches in America. I think a few years ago, there was an author uh, who, who titled a book, uh, Rooting for Rivals. It's a Christian book. Some of you may have read it, been familiar with it. I believe it's attached in some way to Hope International. I think we've had it here uh, even in our own congregation. And the idea behind the book is that in, in, the, in the ministry of the gospel and the proclamation of Jesus, we don't need to be seeing other churches or other ministries as competitions or as rivalry. It's not needed. While Paul was in prison, sure, some had seized on the opportunity to make a name and build a platform for themselves. In their minds, they thought they could profit off of Paul's bondage. That's what they thought. But Paul was pushing forward in his letter a more holistic or kingdom-minded understanding of his current circumstances. Though he was experiencing bondage, 
Paul knew that God would ultimately bring about deliverance. This is what God does. Setting setting captives free is uniquely tied to the testimony of God's faithfulness throughout history. Paul was not ignorant to the historical testimony of our Lord who is able to turn our current adversity into an opportunity to glorify His name and bring about good and deliverance in our lives and the lives of those He places in our pathways. And so, in His imprisonment, while other people were preaching with impure motives and profiting off of it, Paul was rejoicing for he knew he would soon be delivered. He would be delivered. Friends, we will experience deliverance from adversity as well. And Paul's going to unpack this concept of deliverance through two different outcomes. Like Paul, in this life, for all of us who know Jesus, we will experience both temporary and eventually eternal deliverance. Paul would be temporarily delivered from his house arrest. But not long after he was delivered, he would be delivered to his eternal home. Much of history tells us that at the direction of Emperor Nero, about six years after his release, Paul was beheaded. Beheaded. In the end, Paul was right. As he states in verse 19, what did he say? For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He was right on both sides. Delivered temporarily, delivered eternally. He's inviting the church to participate in his suffering and to bear his burdens through their prayers and petitions for him. Prayers that God would strengthen him and that the spirit of Jesus would be with him while he was in prison. His hope was that his confidence would not be shaken, that he would maintain his boldness, whether in life or in death. And he reiterates this in verse 21. It was our monthly memory verse last month. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Dying is gain. It was important for the young and blossoming Christian communities that Paul had planted that his death would not be viewed as a loss, but rather as a gain. Think about the posture Paul could have took in his imprisonment and how that could have damaged the church. He could have viewed it all as loss. Oh, look at what the Roman governments, look at what the Jewish people are doing. They did it to Jesus, now they're doing it to me. And just look at this, it's terrible. I'm in this house and I'm confined and I got nothing, can't do anything and can't go out. And we know this behavior, we all do it. Whining, complaining, right? None of us are innocent of this, friends. From time to time, we can admit that we're all guilty of it. Yeah, you know. (laughs) Now, Paul could have taken that posture. And had he, what would the church have done? Followed his example. Oh, look, there's the 
government's just getting it on us, over us again. They're just doing it again. They're always taking stuff from us. And it, rightly, Paul could have rightly said these things. Nobody, nobody would have argued. He was in a difficult situation. Just adversity dumping on him. But he chooses a better way. Paul chose a better way. A more hopeful lens through which he could see the world. It was the lens of Christ. The hope of Jesus at work in and through him. For the church to view Paul's death as a loss, that certainly would have led to disbelief, despair, perhaps even abandonment of the mission. What are we to do now? They're taking all of our leaders, putting them in prison, and then they're chopping off their heads. Paul says, no. If I die, it's my gain. It's our gain. Death is gain. He's showing in this portion of his letter a love and a concern for the people by preparing them for both forms of his deliverance. And he's inviting them to understand their own lives and experiences through this same lens. He reveals the way that all of this works in verses 22 to 24. With a vision of death that's ultimately for his gain, he's torn. He knows that to remain living will mean that he will continue to be broken and poured out for the sake of those who Jesus has called him to serve. But death would mean having an eternal audience with Jesus, the very one he had committed his life and ministry to. The very one who was inspiring and motivating and compelling every word he wrote, every activity he inhabited, and every breath that he took. It was Jesus who was working in and through Paul all the time. The very author and perfecter of his faith would be physically available to him were his life to be ended on earth. And this was indeed an attractive proposition. Paul knew the precarious situation that the early church was in. He was also confident that God was bringing to completion the good work that he had started in them. He was convinced that his ministry was a part of that process. And so just as he was sure that God would complete the good work he had started within the people, he is also sure in verse 25, what does he say? That I will remain and continue with all of you for the sake of your progress and joy in the faith so that what you can be proud of may increase because of me in Christ Jesus when I come back to you. Historically, when we look at the ministry and the life of Paul, not all of Paul's ministry tenure is recorded in the scriptures. If our timelines are accurate, Paul was released from his imprisonment sometime around 62 AD. And he was not executed until 68 or around 68 AD, which means we're missing about six years of Paul's active ministry. We might speculate that Paul was indeed able at some point during those six years to return to Macedonia. 
and encouraged the congregation that by that time perhaps was flourishing there. In a small yet significant way, Paul's physical presence would provoke joyful confidence among the people. Similar to the joyful confidence that we will experience when Jesus returns and calls his church home. That's going to be a joyous day. Amen? For those who know Jesus, that's going to be a joyous occasion. And we will celebrate when Jesus returns. This phrase that Paul uses, coming to you, it's the same that he uses in 1 Thessalonians 3.13 when he describes Jesus' return. He is going to come back to the church in Philippi and be present with them in the same manner that he envisions Jesus coming back and being present with the church and hoping that in the same way the joy that we'll experience that day will be in a smaller way experienced by the people when they once again see Paul free from his imprisonment. Seeing the power at work within him. What stands out about Paul's approach to ministry in the face of adversity is his commitment to the things in life that matter the most. His life was a life, his example is his example of a life centered on and compelled by Christ. In verses 13 to 26, if you go back through and underline and highlight if you like to do that, Paul refers to the name of Jesus nine different times. Who does he want to receive the glory for everything in his life? For his adversity, for his deliverance, for all things? Jesus. He was committed to the message and the power of the gospel. This is the central message and purpose of Paul's life and ministry. Salvation can be found in Jesus. There's a loyalty to the people that he had been called to serve, a desire to see them continue to grow and flourish in the faith, even after he's gone. Church, that's important. Our legacy is important. What we're doing today with purpose and intentionality is important, it's meaningful. Preparing people. For life without our physical presence, for those of you that are parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, neighbors, to younger people, having influence, preparing them for how to live in the world after you're going, living as an example, speaking words of life and words of truth. It's important. Ultimately, for Paul, a desire to glorify God in everything was a massive portion and made up the entirety of his life and ministry. When we live our lives as if death is gain, God has a way of bringing into focus the priorities in life that really matter. There's a lot of things, a lot of things every day that I complain about. Ask my wife. You really want to know. How much of them really matter in view of eternity? And how much is my complaining distracting me and taking me off mission? 
challenge. What an incredible act of love and self-sacrifice that while in prison, Paul would concern himself with preparing the Christian communities that he was establishing for life and flourishing apart from his presence with them. And we're reminded by Paul that our reason for rejoicing in Jesus, even when facing adversity, is that Jesus is faithful to perform and complete the work that he has started in us. Jesus is motivating us and moving us towards postures and attitudes of love towards those he's placed in our pathways. And Jesus is always faithful. He will either return or call us home. And in both cases, we will find ourselves delivered from sin and from the brokenness that exists in this fallen world. He is the God that works all things together for the good of those who are loved and are called by his name. Our response should be joy rather than negativity, criticism, and condemnation. We should have love, not fear, hope, not despair, faith, not apathy, and gratitude, not entitlement. In the end, those whose lives will be most satisfied in Christ and able to truly glory in him when they see that he is reigning victoriously in and through our lives as demonstrated in our attitudes, words, and actions. And perhaps the greatest question that we could ask ourselves in light of Paul's words today is this. What would the patterns, habits, and behaviors of my life look like if I truly lived like I have more to gain in death than in this life. As our team comes, let's pray. Father, what an incredible testimony you've given us in the example of Paul today. Powerful words to help carry us through the adversities that we face. We do not face these times without hope. Lord, we know that you are faithful, that you will return one day. Lord, that we can live with joy, abounding joy, immeasurable joy. But only through the work of Jesus in and through our hearts and minds and lives. Lord, we need him to influence us. We need to be able to see from his example, to hear from his words. And we need you through the power of the Spirit to motivate within us the strength and the courage to follow. To follow his ways. To speak his words. To be present with people as he was present with people. To love. Lord, help us to have hope. Help us to have joy. And help us to shine as salt. Or shine as light and be salt. In the world you've placed us in. In Jesus' name, amen.